Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Worcester Talking Newspaper, recorded at Colin Chance House on Thursday, May the 10th. I'm Jenny Tansy and with me reading the news are... Sue Perry, Hannah Green, Kate Hudman. Nigel Green is our engineer, Carol Hartle is working on the administration and this week's copying team are Bernard and Doreen Potter and Janet Bailey. And Bernard is making very good progress with the healing of his burns, I'm glad to say. Thanks to Worcester News for all our information. The headlines this week are hit-and-run driver injures teen, don't stay quiet, patient's 17-hour ordeal on a trolley, rape victim, sorry, rape victim fights back, accused, I didn't intend to kill my dad, and... I'm disgusted. And the deaths uh, this week are Anne Jones, known as Ada, passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal on April the 14th, aged 88. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 18th at 2.30. Rosalind Dawn Joyner passed away aged 53. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 14th at 10.45. Geoffrey William Price, which was Price Cars in Upton, passed away peacefully on April the 27th at St. Richard's Hospice, aged 69. The funeral service is at Earl's Croom Church on May the 23rd at 2.30. Cedric Thomas Rogers died peacefully at home on April the 26th, aged 81. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 29th at 1.45. Neil Stoneham, ex-Royal Mail, passed away on April the 16th, age 54. The funeral service is to celebrate his life at Worcester Crematorium on May the 11th at 1pm. Lillian Emily Stiles, known as Bill, nay Wood, passed away at home on April the 13th, aged 83. The service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 18th at 1130 Geoffrey Hunt, known as Jeff, passed away peacefully at the Royal Hospital on April the 24th, sorry, 24th aged 87. The funeral service is, in, is at St. Philip's and St. James's Church in Hallow on May the 15th at 3.30. Evelyn Barbara Taylor sadly passed away on April the 7th, aged 79. The funeral service is at St. Denny's Church in Seven Stoke on May the 11th at 1515. Susan Jane Watts passed away at Pershaw Community Hospital on April the 12th, aged 65.
The service is to separate, celebrate her life at Ashwood Cemetery on May the 14th at 1pm. Rick Blackmore, ex-licensee at the Seabright Arms and the Beehive, passed away on April the 20th, aged 83. The funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 17th at 11.30. Selina Norris, formerly Roberts, passed away on April the 27th, aged 84. The funeral service and burial as is at St. Philip's and St. James's Church in Hallow on May the 16th at 12 noon. Karen Elizabeth Taylor, nay Gunter, passed away unexpectedly at home on April the 15th, aged 66. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 24th at 3.15. John Godfrey passed away on, at the Royal, Hosp- uh, Royal Hospital on April the 15th. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 22nd at 1pm. And John Green, known as Guppy, passed away on April the 5th, aged 82. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on May the 15th at 12.15. Our thoughts and prayers go with the um, families. The thought for today is uh, Corinthians 1, verses 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I'll pass you over to, to Sue for the first headline. And this is the headline from Friday, May the 4th. A heartless driver smashed into a teenage boy and fled the scene. Ryan Davis, aged 13, of Kempsey, was walking to his friend's house in Brookend Lane in the village when a car crashed into the back of him. The teenager was knocked over by the force, but the driver is said to have fled the scene immediately, leaving Ryan with a fractured shoulder and tissue damage. Now his mother, Gemma Haywood, wants help in tracking down the culprit. She said, I can't believe that anyone could do that to someone, particularly a young boy. You just don't expect someone to leave a person in that state. Anything could have happened to him, but the driver didn't care. He suffered a fractured shoulder and it was a major shock for him. It could have been far worse. He had just left home when he was hit. It is just so heartless. Angry is not the word. It is much worse than that. I am absolutely fuming. He had to go to A&E after and is going to the doctors regularly. I have had to keep him off school because of his injuries. I want to find out who did it. I would like help to get this person caught. He was very shaken up by what happened. Ryan was hit by a black 4x4 on Sunday at around 4.26pm, but there are no further details about the car or the driver. A witness saw the car hit Ryan and called the police, who took him home. He was taken to Worcestershire Royal Hospital later that night. A West Mercia police spokesman said, Police were called to a collision between a car and a pedestrian on Brookend Lane in Kempsey at 4.26pm on Sunday, April the 29th. A teenage boy is believed to have suffered a shoulder injury. It is hoped that Ryan will return to school on Tuesday, but he will have to keep his writing arm in a sling for a further two weeks. Anyone with information can call the police on 101, quoting incident number 506 of April 29. 
And on Saturday, May the 5th, the headline was Don't Stay Quiet. A mother whose partner hit her with a car and punched her so hard she needed stitches has pleaded with other abused women not to stay silent. Sandra O'Brien-Jones, aged 35, a mum of two, said her partner initially couldn't do enough for her, but by the end of the relationship she believed he was going to kill her. She became the victim of violent attacks after she began dating Sean Smith, a man described by magistrates as violent. She finally realised the relationship needed to end after he punched her in the face and she saw he was holding a knife. Smith, 45, was found guilty of assault by beating and driving a motor vehicle dangerously at trial and pleaded guilty to criminal damage, ABH and malicious communication on Wednesday, May 2nd. Magistrates heard Smith of Chedworth Close, Warnden, had punched Miss O'Brien-Jones to the face and stamped on a child's Christmas present, a remote control car, and punched a television on Boxing Day. Smith called Miss O'Brien-Jones on a friend's mobile on January 12th and said he would kill her when he next saw her. A few weeks later, on February 16th, Smith drove his car at Miss O'Brien-Jones and her friend Cindy Godby, clipping Miss O'Brien-Jones and causing bruising to Miss Godby's ankle. The attack happened after she and her friend had been drinking at the Hand in Glove in College Street and met Smith, who gave them a lift in his Seat Leon. Carrie Lovegrove, prosecuting, said, All had been fine. He was driving them in his car, then things started to go downhill. In the scuffle, Miss O'Brien-Jones grabbed part of his shirt and it had ripped. Smith drove at the two women after they were out of the car, but claimed he hadn't intended to run her over. Christopher Agri, defending, said it was a very emotional situation. He just wanted to get away. Three weeks later, on March the 9th, Smith punched Miss O'Brien-Jones in the face after an argument about her speaking to a man. The court heard the pair had gone out drinking together, fallen out, and Smith had followed Miss O'Brien-Jones home. She later needed six stitches to her left eye. Mrs Lovegrove said she called the police and tried to run away but he grabbed her and punched her in the face. She had her hands in front of her face to protect herself. Police arrived to arrest Smith and Miss O'Brien-Jones then saw he was holding a knife. Mr Agri said he was going to hurt himself with that knife. He did not intend to use the knife on the victim. He highlighted Smith's mental health including anxiety issues, adding, he has shown remorse. I don't think she, Miss O'Brien-Jones, has given up on him. If I could talk to her, she would be saying, get this man some help. He can see she has helped him in a difficult time. I believe she will make a full recovery from her injuries. Until this offence, he has hardly anything on his record, his last offence is in 1994. You could say he's of previous good character. 
He said Smith had called an ambulance himself to ensure Miss O'Brien Jones had received medical treatment. He added, the relationship is well and truly over. At Kidderminster Magistrates Court, Smith was remanded in custody. He'll be sentenced at Worcester Crown Court on Friday, May 25th. And the headline for Monday, May the 7th, Patient's 17-hour ordeal on a trolley. A sick man says he spent 17 hours on a trolley and received no medical treatment at Worcester's hospital. Christopher Lane, 59 says he was taken by ambulance to Worcestershire Royal Hospital because he could not walk due to arthritis in his foot. Mr Lane of Meadow Court in Worcester claims he waited 17 hours on a trolley before being discharged without treatment or pain relief. He said he was put in a side ward with a few other patients and was not seen by medics until he was discharged. It just got to me the way they were not interested, he said. People who came after me were going through and I was left waiting forever. I was told they were going to make it quieter for us. They were right. They put us up in a side ward. I couldn't see anybody. No nurses, just porters. I had to beg a porter for a bottle so I could go to the toilet. And when I did ask someone if I could have some pain relief, they said they would come back in a moment, but they never came back. I couldn't get anyone to come look at us. It was a really bad experience. Mr Lane, who suffers an angi- from angina, heart disease and sleep apnea, arrived at the hospital on Friday, April the 27th at 1.30pm and was discharged at 10am on Saturday, April the 28th. He says his own experience at the hospital has left him concerned for other patients. I was supposed to get an ECG, but I didn't get that, he said. When it came to half past seven on Saturday morning, the staff nurse said you'll be going home in a couple of hours and that they could only apologise. They could see on my chart that no one had been to see me. It is negligence. People are going to die. I can't blame the nurses or the doctors for not doing their job. Their hands are tied. I think it is the the management of the hospital. It is not fit for purpose. Mr Lane said he is now taking tramadol and is able to get around using sticks and a Zimmer frame, but is expecting to get a wheelchair in the next two weeks. He said he was told to get an ambulance to the hospital on April the 27th after attending Barbourne's Medical Centre. A Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust spokesman said, Our services are continuing to face very high levels of demand. Staff in our emergency departments, EDs, and their colleagues in wards and departments across our trust are working hard to care for large numbers of very seriously ill patients. All patients are assessed according to the urgency of their medical need, with medication and pain relief prescribed as appropriate. We are continuing to work with our partners in other local NHS organisations and the council to make sure all the health and care facilities in the county are being used to best effect so that patients can be offered suitable alternatives to ED where possible and also to ensure that any patients in our hospitals who are medically fit can be discharged in a safe and timely manner to free up beds. Headline for Tuesday, May the 8th, is Rape Victim Fights Back. A teenage woman stabbed a man after he raped her in an alleyway. 
The woman was raped in an alleyway after being approached by an unknown man in the early hours of Saturday morning. Detectives say they believe the woman grabbed a sharp object and stabbed the man in the side, back or abdomen as she defended herself. Officers appealed for help to catch the man, who struck at around 3am in an alleyway between Trent Close and Worcester Road in Droitwich. Detective Chief, Chief Inspector Steve Tonk said, This was a terrifying incident for this young woman and one that has caused concern in the local community. It's important we catch this man as soon as possible, and I'd urge anyone who witnessed anyone acting suspiciously in the area around the time of the incident, or who has any information that could help with our inquiries to get in touch. The victim fought the man off, and in the process, we suspect he has suffered a stab wound in his side, back or abdomen. DCI Tonk said it is possible that the man then sought medical attention for his wounds or attempted to treat them himself at home. Do you know someone who suffered a stab wound over the weekend? If so, we would like to hear from you, he continued. We are thoroughly investigating this incident and specially trained officers are supporting the victim. The support of the public will be key in helping us to catch the offender and any information, no matter how small, could be vital. Anyone with information can call 101 and quote Incident 788S of May the 5th. Alternatively, information can be passed on anonymously via the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or by going to crimestoppers.uk.org. And this is the headline from Wednesday, May the 9th. Accused, I didn't intend to kill my dad. A man accused of murdering his father said he had no intention of killing him when they met and he just lost control. Daryl Sampson, aged 29, who is accused of killing Robert Sampson last November, said he was terrified of his father and he took the knife to frighten his dad and stop their meeting from descending into violence. He said how his father had terrorised him as a child and threatened to smash his fingers with a hammer. Sampson told the jury he was dragged from his father's BMW parked in the bus stop in Crookbarrow Road, Norton, by his shoulder before the pair argued and Robert Sampson punched him in the throat. Sampson said, He threw the punch in my throat and I stumbled back and that is when I drew the knife. He must not have seen the knife because he went for me again. He has lunged to grab me and that is when the knife came up. Sampson said his father was aggressive from the off and spoke as if he wanted a fight. It was happening so fast and so quickly there was definitely a lot of pushing and shoving. Defending, Rachel Brand QC asked Sampson why he took a knife with him to meet his father and he said, panic, fear, fear of violence. Prosecuting, Tahir Khan QC asked Sampson what he intended to do with the knife. He said, frighten him, protect myself. I took it with the intention of stopping anything going further. I didn't think anything like this would happen. Mr Khan then asked Sampson how he felt about his father punching him. I panicked, I was angry and hurt, upset and scared, he said. 
I was just completely out of it. I was just a wreck. I was so upset. Samson admitted to punching and kicking his father when he was on the floor, but maintained he had no intention of killing him with the knife. He said, It all happened so quickly I was just out of it, out of control. I absolutely lost it. Samson told Birmingham Crown Court his father rarely bought him birthday gifts and cards, only paid for his school uniform once and never bought him school shoes. He rarely saw his father except for when he visited his mother's house for Sunday lunch. Samson said his father constantly promoted violence. He would get really aggressive and he was really short-tempered. He would spit, shout, scream, punch walls and punch windows. Samson said his father hit him across the back of the head with a fork when he was eight years old. He told Samson that he would smash his fingers with a hammer if he ever caught him stealing. Robert Samson also punched a 15-year-old Samson, a 15-year-old Samson in the face following a phone call over his behaviour at school, which was jeopardising an art trip to New York. After recently moving into his own flat, Samson refused to give his son £5 for cleaning products and told him he would only keep asking if he gave it him now. He was my only form of support, he said. Samson said he did not reveal his heroin addiction to his father for more than a year because he was ashamed and frightened. The pair met in March 2017 after Samson saw his father standing in Worcester High Street. They both hugged each other and Robert Samson later invited his son to his wedding in Italy. Samson said the next time he saw his father was November the 16th when they met in Crook Barrow Road. The trial continues. And today's headline is I'm Disgusted. A widow is disgusted over allegations that a digger or mower has been driven over graves in the city graveyard. Gillian Handley has hit out at Worcester City Council after spotting track marks in St John's Cemetery off McIntyre Road on Sunday. This is the second time in six months residents have claimed a digger has gone over graves at the site. Mrs Handley, aged 69, whose husband John is buried in the graveyard, said, It's appalling they drive over people's graves. I spoke to four different people who were visiting graves and they were all disgusted like I was. It started happening when they drove over Jane Jane Griffith's mum's grave before Christmas. They have driven over a few graves. They've gone up the line behind my husband's grave. Mrs Handley of Hanbury Road, Park Road, Worcester, said the council now uses a digger instead of shovels to create graves. Jane Griffith said a digger drove over her mother's grave in November, although the council said it was actually a mower that caused the damage. Mrs Griffiths, whose son Anthony is also buried in St John's Cemetery, spotted some more track marks last week. The 62-year-old of Grenville Road, Worcester, said they were big. The tracks are on another grave further up. I would be angry if they were on my son's grave. It's terrible, it's disrespectful and I think the council should stop it. They used to use a shovel if it, the burial place is next to another grave, but now they use the digger. 
Mrs. Griffiths goes to the cemetery every day to visit her son, who died from pneumonia aged 29 in 2005. The mother previously said she contacted the cemetery several times to complain about the tyre marks, but did not receive a response. Worcester City Council was unavailable for comment when contacted by the Worcester News. And this is the continuation of the story uh, with regarding the man accused of murdering his father. Um, actually, this is from Friday, May the 4th, so this was is actually prior to the previous headline that you heard. The sister of a man accused of murdering his father, Robert Sampson, has described how she opened her front door to find him with bloody palms saying, he's dead, I've killed him. Danielle Thrower told the jury how Daryl Sampson handed over her mobile phone covered in blood before saying he needed to hand himself in and walking away. Robert Sampson died after being stabbed in Crookbarrow Road, Norton, Worcester, in November last year. The court heard Sampson had arranged to meet his dad at the bus stop in Crookbarrow Road so he could lay everything out on the table and discuss what he called their toxic, abandoning relationship after Mr Sampson had refused to pay for his son's drug rehabilitation treatment in Thailand. Miss Thrower, along with her sister, Dominique Edwards, had collected Sampson from Walsall and drove him to Norton after he said he wanted to throw himself off a building. The sisters had gone to separate nearby ho- homes. However, after Sampson appeared on Miss Thrower's doorstep, the two sisters both rushed to the bus stop and found Sampson, 29, being restrained by police. Daryl's mother, Karen Thrower, told the court how her son kept a knife in a safe under the bed in his old bedroom in Broomore Cottages. Sampson bought the knife after being obsessed with the film Into the Wild, in which the main character abandons a prosperous life to live off the land. He had previously skinned a rabbit with the knife and cooked it after accidentally running it over. Yesterday, Birmingham Crown Court heard Daryl Sampson's relationship with his father was strained and Mr Sampson had punched his son in 2004 when he was 15 years old. Their relationship had worsened when he refused to pay to extend his drug rehabilitation treatment in Thailand. Karen Thrower said her son had been doing well in Thailand but had deteriorated after receiving a message from his father. A staff member at the rehabilitation centre had emailed to say he felt his father had never been there. The message added, it has brought to the surface a lot of anger. Deborah Sampson, Mr Sampson's wife at the time of his death, said he was keen to offer emotional support but believed his son's drug addiction was his own problem and he was not willing to fund it. However, Mrs Sampson said he had been attending evening meetings to better understand heroin addiction. Daniel Thrower described Sampson's relationship with his dad as non-existent. Sarah Horton, a custody nurse who examined Sampson at Worcester Police Station, told the court that he'd said, It is all his fault. I had full intention of killing him for what he has done to my mum. He beat her. Mrs Horton said Sampson told her he had said, I want this to be the last face you see before slapping his father in the face. He told the nurse he didn't regret it and was glad he was dead and got what he deserved. 
Previously, the jury heard from Tahir Khan, QC, prosecuting, who said Daryl Sampson had plunged a knife through his father's ribcage and punctured his heart. The trial continues. Youths are terrorising a neighbourhood after regeneration plans for a row of shops came to a standstill. Police say youngsters are causing trouble near the run-down shops in Rose Avenue in Tolodyne. Many of the shops are empty as the area is due to undergo a major revamp, but residents say that the boarded-up shops are now a breeding ground for problems. We reported how four new shops and four houses are due to replace the closed-down businesses last August. However, nine months later, the estimated 1.7 million project put forward by the landowner Fortis remains on hold. Five businesses have already shut their doors or moved elsewhere, leaving only three working shops. Steve Jones, who lives in the area, said, We need this scheme to happen. There's a lot of vandalism and drug activity happening here. Very little is left of the shops on this street. Everyone has to go to Tesco's. He added, It's rough around here. This area is a nightmare. The newsagent's glass has been smashed and replaced plenty of times. P.C. Allen Figueredo from the Gorse Hill and Rainbow Hill Safer Neighbourhood team said, The team has been dealing with an increase in antisocial behaviour over the last few months as a result of a small group of youths who see fit to terrorise the neighbourhood. As a result of this, we have identified some of the main perpetrators and have been dealing with them individually via the Harm Assessment Unit. We have also implemented several dispersal orders during peak times such as at weekends and bank holidays with a view to dispersing groups should antisocial behaviour be reported. We've also been working closely with the various housing associations to deal with the problems. Crime figures show West Mersia police recorded 54 crimes near Rose Avenue out of 150 crimes in the Gorse Hill and Rainbow Hill area. Sunny Singh from Rose Avenue Friar said, We're the only business left on this side of the road. We'll be moving across the road at the end of this year. A letter from the resident said, in, a recent time, sorry, in recent times, the area around the Rose Avenue shops has become a wasteland and a breeding ground for antisocial behaviour, vandalism and mountains of litter in the area. Fortis Living was approached for a comment. Plans to extend a hotel at Abberley near Worcester look set to get the go-ahead. The Elms Hotel, Stockton Road, has applied for planning permission to provide 25 new rooms, bringing the total to 40. The application also included 11 staff rooms and improvements to the access around the hotel and the spa. At a meeting of Malvern Hills District Council's Northern Area Planning Committee, members voted to delegate approval of the plan to the Council's Head of Planning, subject to further consultation being completed. The Elms is a Grade 2 listed building and is currently operated as a country hotel with spa retreat set within mature parkland of more than eight acres. The Elms was built in 1710 and designed by Thomas White, a pupil of Sir Christopher Wren. White's other work includes the Guildhall at Worcester, which contains many features similar to the house.
Abberley Parish Council did not object in principle to the hotel increasing its number of rooms. However, it said that it objects unreservedly to the character, size and style of the current proposal. Whilst noting that alterations to the existing Grade 2 buildings often require changes to be identifiable to subsequent generations, what is proposed would appear to be drastically out of keeping with the current building and does not demonstrate the architectural merit one would expect, says its report. Whilst there has been some alteration to the building within and without over the years, the façade has remained relatively unscathed. The bungalow immediately affected will have its outlook dominated by a rather monolithic structure and be overlooked to the extent that privacy for the occupants will all but disappear. We believe strongly that they have a reasonable right to this privacy and that this should be taken into account when revisiting the plans. Nobody can remember it happening before, but a serving mayor in Worcester has lost his seat during his mayoral year. Steve Mackay has been Worcester's leading citizen since last May and his term of office runs out on May 15th. But he was voted out as a councillor at the elections for City Council on Thursday. This is last week. All councillors have four days after an election to fulfil existing engagements, which means Mr Mackay can conduct any duties until Bank Holiday Monday. But after that, on Tuesday, that was the 8th, new councillors are inducted and Mr Mackay will be replaced as Batten Hall councillor by Louise Griffiths of the Green Party. But she won't take over his role as mayor. So for a week from Tuesday until May 15th, Worcester will be without a mayor. Any engagements may be cancelled or Councillor Jabarias, deputy mayor, may be able to step in. A new mayor will be elected at the annual council meeting at the Guildhall on May 15th. It isn't unknown in Worcester for a deputy mayor not to be elected to the top job. The turnout in the local election in Worcester this year was 34.8%. That's a couple of percentage points down on the corresponding election in 2016, which averaged 36.5. It's about standard for local elections when they're not accompanied by a general election. But there were some big disparities across the city. Nearly 56% of the voters turned out to cast a vote in Battenhall, perhaps energised by the close battle between Conservative Steve Mackay and a new Green challenger, Louise Griffith. The second highest turnout was in Leafy Clains, again where there was a close race between the Conservative candidate Stuart Denby-Maxwell and Mel Alcott from the Liberal Democrats. Voters in safe Labour seats seemed less inclined to stroll to their nearest polling station, despite Thursday's sunshine. In Rainbow Hill, the turnout was 24.5%. In St John's, it was 27.46%. The prospect of casting two votes didn't seem to appeal to Warnden residents. Only 22.66% of them were motivated to take part in the election. There are new designs for Worcester's newest school. 
The North Worcester Primary Academy is due to open in Purdiswell in September 2019. A spokesman said, The ultra-modern school building will use very latest education-specific design ideas and technology, providing the optimum teaching and learning environment. The Academy is managed by the Rivers Multi Academy Trust, whose Chief Executive, Kate Brunt, added, It is a very exciting time to be creating a new school from scratch. Within the Trust, we are continually collaborating and sharing learnings from all nine of our schools, and as such we have been able to cherry-pick some of the best features from other schools and build them into the design of North Worcester Primary Academy. The new building will bring many fantastic opportunities for our future pupils and our new school community. The school, which will be at the former Park and Ride site in Purdiswell, will take its first 60 reception pupils and 26 preschool children in September 2019, reaching its full potential of 420 pupils of primary age over seven years. Classrooms will be light and spacious with climate control. Design-led room layouts will assist best teaching practice, include age-specific library areas and interconnected breakout areas for one-to-one support. Specialist subject rooms will give the space and resources for pupils to take part in regular practical activities in STEM subjects and food technology. While a dedicated studio room will be provided specialist for specialist space for music, technology and dance. There will be a strong emphasis on pastoral care and the building incorporates a nurture reflection room to facilitate this, a spokesman said. There will also be a full kitchen to allow fresh food to be prepared and cooked on site. Outside, an artificial turf area will enable children to play outdoor sports all year round, while mature trees and shrubs will provide an environment for forest school activities. City councillors voted to sell three acres of the five-acre park and ride site to the government last September to pave the way for the new school to come to fruition. For more education news, see worcesternews.co.uk. A school for blind and partially sighted youngsters is celebrating scooping an outstanding social care record for the third year in a row. New College Worcester in Whittington Road received the highest ratings in all areas. The Ofsted report read, The residential special school provides highly effective services that consistently exceed the standards of good. The actions of the school contribute to significantly improved outcomes and positive experiences for children and young people. Karen Keenan, Head of Care, said, I'm absolutely thrilled at the outcome. We all pride ourselves on giving the children the very best residential experience that we possibly can. Parents place their trust in us to look after their children, some of whom have had very difficult experiences at school before coming here. So it's a fantastic, so it is fantastic to have the recognition that their trust is being repaid with outstanding care. The report, which described the residential provision as vibrant and homely, also identified three areas for improvement. Some bathroom and shower areas were described as having an institutional feel, and the sixth form hostel required further attention. 
Um, this article relates to um, Jenny Cheshire, who's the executive director um, of the Worcester Race Course, and she's talking about 300 years of racing in the city. When the gates open tomorrow, um, which means May the 10th, for the 2018 summer jumping season at Worcester Racecourse, they will bring the curtain up on a very historic year. As one of Britain's oldest racecourses, racing will have been taking place at Pitchcroft on the banks of the River Severn for 300 years. I feel humbled to be a small part of the immensely colourful history that has unfolded through the 300 years since 1718. I also feel it is important that as a city we recognise and celebrate not only the past but also the present and in doing so we toast the future of this prominent landmark in the heart of the city. We are looking forward to the 300th anniversary race day on July the 4th and in particular to the feature race which will see the resurrection of the famous Worcester annual um, steeplechase from formerly run at the course between 1836 and 1933. Acclaimed racing author and journalist Chris Pitt has recently written a fascinating book capturing many stories about the events and racing that has been staged at the course over the years. Pitchcroft, 300 Years of Racing in Worcester, will be officially launched at the meeting tomorrow and Pitt will be on hand to speak to racegoers during the afternoon. At Worcester, we keenly support the grassroots of national hunt racing. I am delighted that 7betsforfree.com have again sponsored the Fixed Brush Hurdle Summer Series this year, offering opportunities for maiden and novice hurdlers to compete for a £30,000 final in October. This will be our venue's richest ever race. The final of last year's contest went to the Ian Williams-trained psychedelic rock with Nigel Twiston Davis's Arthur's Gift behind in second place. Arthur's Gift returned to the course in November, going one better and winning the Worcester News handicapped hurdle. Both psychedelic rock and Arthur's Gift appeared in the same Class 2 handicap hurdle at Market Raisin in December when the, the latter turned the tables and won by one at one by one and three-quarter lengths. Arthur's Gift went on to win another handicap hurdle at Cheltenham in December, bringing his earnings to an impressive 42000 Two other novices who ran in the Fixed Brush Hurdle Series final were Old Harry Rocks, and Robin the Raven. Both horses went on to win their next races in November at Leicester and Ludlow respectively. We wait with anticipation to see which horses' careers will be boosted by the new series. The leading trainer competition for 2018 has a new sponsor in Hazelton Mountford Equine Insurance. Last season's title went to John Joe O'Neill, with Dan Skelton and Philip Hobbs both close, close behind. Richard Johnson ran away with the Cheltenham and Three Counties Race Club Jockeys title in 2017. Aidan Coleman finished runner-up, and tying for third place were Sam Twiston-Davis and Harry Skelton. The race club have sponsored the contest again in 2018. With the track in great shape, 
having enjoyed a six-month break from racing, we are eager to welcome racegoers and students of the University of Worcester for a great day's racing tomorrow. And here's another date for your diaries. Preparations for this year's Worcester Carnival are gathering pace. The annual extravaganza will be starting at Pitchcroft for the first time in over 20 years on Saturday, July the 7th. And the Grand Parade will make its way around the city, including Dolday, Deansway, The Cross and Castle Street. On Carnival Day, there'll be a funfair, live entertainment and trade stalls, as well as the parade, which will start at 3pm. The event this year has a television and film theme with colourful floats planned. Carnival Secretary Christine King said, This is an event for the entire community and we want to see the entire community coming along. As part of preparations, organisers have written to Worcester schools to encourage them to design a flag for the parade. Prizes will be given out to the under-16s and the 11- to 16-year-old age groups. Any teachers from schools interested are asked to email schools at worcester-carnival.co.uk. Organisers are also giving children the chance to accompany the Carnival Queen on the Royal Carnival Float. Carnival President Councillor Alan Feeney said... On July the 7th, the street of Worcester will come alive once again. Carnival organisers would like to offer two lucky children the chance to take part in the parade as attendants to our Carnival Queen, joining her on a float for the procession. This exciting opportunity is open to boys and girls aged 6 to 8 years old. This will be the first time in over 25 years that lucky children will have had this opportunity. Parents can nominate a child by sending a photo together with up to 75 words on why they think their child would make the ideal attendant. To enter, email info at worcester-carnival.co.uk or post to Worcester Carnival CO Perdiswell Young People's Leisure Club, Perdiswell Park, Worcester WR37SN. The closing date for entries is May 31st. The future of plans for housing and community facilities at Kemsey remains up in the air for the moment. Developer Taylor Wimpy has applied for permission to build 113 homes plus sports pitches, a community hall and public open space on a site off Pixham Ferry Lane and Old Road South in the village. At a meeting of Malvern Hills District Council on Wednesday night, planning officers were recommending that the scheme should be refused as unsustainable development. But in earlier consultations, Kemsey Parish Council had come out in favour of the scheme, saying that the sports pitches and community facilities were sorely needed in the village. The claim was vigorously supported by sports clubs based in the village as well. At the meeting, local members David Harrison and John Michael proposed and seconded a motion for approval of the application. But when it was put to a vote, the motion was defeated by four votes to eight, with three abstentions. Councillor Sarah Rouse then proposed that a decision on the application should be deferred to give Taylor Wimpey 
<coughs> excuse me, the chance to resubmit the plans with fewer houses, where she felt would be which she felt would be more acceptable to many. She said, "I'm a little concerned about the density. I would have liked to see a few less houses, not a lot less, about 95." Her motion for deferral was approved 10 votes to 2 with 3 abstentions. A spokesman for Taylor Wimpy said, "Following the planning committee's decision, we are prepared to continue to work with planning officers to try and find a solution that works for everyone and allows the sports facilities to be delivered for the benefit of the local community." The company has previously described the plan as a well-designed project which will fit in with existing properties. The proposal will also deliver 70% green space on the site, which is well above the council's own policy of 40%, as well as 45 affordable homes. We're now going to um, have a few um, sporty articles, and the first one I'm going to read about is um, the Worcester Raiders um, football team. It's um, describing in its headline a stylish league finish for the club. Worcester Raiders completed their West Midlands League Division 1 season with a 3-0 home win over Allscott. Logan Stoddart, Matt Tyler and Chris Corns scored the goals in the Clanes Lane clash which doubled as a League Cup second round tie. Raiders' success means they visit Wren's Nest in the quarter-finals on Thursday at 7.45. That was last week. The city side will finish 6th or 7th in the table depending on the final result for Gornal Athletic at Kington Town on Saturday. Malvern Town manager Les Jones' last game in charge ended in a 3-0 defeat at Premier Division champions Wolverhampton Sporting Community. Stourport Swifts finished 15th in the Midland League Premier Division after finishing the campaign with a 3-0 home loss to Coventry United. Since April the 16th, Swifts squeezed in 12 games after a rain-ravaged campaign. Droitwich Spa secured third spot in Division 2 with six consecutive wins and now go for silverware this weekend. Over five days, Spa beat Northfield Town, 2-1, Montpellier 7-2 and Moores Academy 4-1. They tackle Fairfield Villa in the Worcestershire FA Junior Cup final at Bewdley Town on Saturday. Former Worcester City forward James Lemon and Brad Burgess scored last week at Northfield. Lemon bagged a hat-trick alongside Matt Hunt, Burgess, Curtis Townley and Dan Cottrell's first senior goal in their big home win over Montpellier in a rare return to King George's playing fields on Saturday. Spa then romped home at Moors on Monday with Lemon bagging two while Hayden Morris and Burgess were also on target. And this is another article... um, about football. Oh, sorry, no, it's, it's cricket, I think. Newman helps spin Rushwick to win. Yes, it's talking about leg spinner, so I assume that's cricket, isn't it? Rushwick's first Worcestershire League second uh, 11 Division 2 victory of the season came at a canter. Leg spinner Wayne Newman grabbed seven... For 25 to keep visitors warm low to 141 all out. 
Captain Gary Watkins then chipped in with an undefeated 61 to ensure a seven-wicket victory. Bromsgrove fourths beat Old Vignorians, seconds by four wickets after a strong fight back from the Worcester side when all looked lost. After being put into bat, 10-man OVs managed a respectable 175 all out. George Hayward Meek top scored with 38, Chris Drew made 26, skipper Aidan Thompson 21 and James Barder 24. Left arm spinner Edward Barnes 12 took 5 for 54 on his debut. Tom Hope, 49, and Lucas Ingram, 25, played attractive shots, but also rode their luck against tight bowling to share an 85-run opening stand. Teenager James Hayward Meek, 5 for 48, returned for a devastating second spell, which saw Bromsgrove lose six wickets for 33 runs. But Tom Smith, 33 not out, and Rob Law, 25 not out, steadied the ship and saw the town home by four wickets with overs to spare. Worcester Nomads lost by nine wickets to Hagley in Division 1. Having reached 69-0 in good time, the visitors' batting imploded, losing all their wickets for just 15 more runs. Only Malcolm Jones made any headway with a patient 40. Hagley made light work of the meagre target, taking just 11 overs to record an empathetic victory. Worcester finally got their season started with a win over Droitwich Spa to go fifth. And this is cricket as well. Worcestershire debutante Ben Tuick says bowling hundreds of deliveries at a handkerchief in India in the winter helped him develop and gain the control needed as a spinner in the first-class game. But Tuick, 20, believes the experience of two months abroad and of having to do everything for yourself in old-school India also helped him to grow up and mature as a person. He made his first-class debut in County Championship Division 1 against Surrey in his first visit to the Kia Oval and showed plenty of promise with the ball. Ex-Malvern College pupil Toig started in the second eleven five years ago and has always been one of the club's most promising prospects, working closely with spin bowling coach Norman Gifford. Now that potential is coming to fruition and Tuig recognises how the winter abroad, based mainly at Baroda at the MKGM school, as well as two weeks in the Global Cricket School in Mumbai, helped him take that step forward. He said, control was a main part of why I went away. I wanted to go away and try to get that understanding of my own action without input from anyone else. I feel I've come back a lot more consistent than last year. I'm still spinning the ball, which is a good sign, but I'm getting a lot more control and I'm more economical, so on good wickets I might be going at three and over instead of four or five. I didn't have to go to India to figure this out, but they are taught no matter what to hit line and length. They are very simple in the way they play their cricket because they don't have the facilities and resources. 
They didn't have bowling machines, the technology to fast track, so it was just down to hard work and hitting and bowling thousands of balls. I'd have days and think I'm going to bowl 300 balls at a handkerchief and see how many I hit. Turek, who worked with coach Connor Williams, enjoyed the challenge of fending for himself in India. He said, I did a lot of one-to-one work with Connor and then went to the Global Cricket School for two weeks in Mumbai, which I got a lot from as well. Mumbai was busy, but I'm glad I got to see the real side of India first because it was a bit more old school where I was in terms of just nothing has quite got there yet. There are still a lot of animals on the road and not many cars. It's like old school India, whereas Mumbai is like any city in being busy with a lot going on. You can get anything you want, whereas in Baroda you had to do everything for yourself. You had to wash your own clothes. There were no washing machines and I had to walk to the ground every day to practice. I did did a bit of coaching as well and ate at the school with the kids three times a day, all vegetarian, so that was a shock because I'm not a vegetarian. But they were just really nice people, very welcoming, and I really enjoyed it. It was a good experience. The trip helped me as a bowler and as a batsman, but also it just helped me to grow up a bit. Toic will hope to retain his place when the county hosts reigning champions Essex in championship from tomorrow, 11am. Nice and rugby union, Worcester Warriors. Worcester Warriors chief Alan Solomons has warned his players to expect a brutal season when they return from their summer holidays. After nine months of Eva Premiership Per campaign, Solomons has given his squad a five-week break to rest their weary bodies. But having finished just one place above the drop zone, Warriors Director of Rugby insisted his men needed to be conditioned physically and mentally in preparation for next season. Warriors won seven league games this term, but suffered 15 defeats, including a final day 32-24 loss at Northampton Saints last Saturday. Solomons is desperate to see a more consistent Worcester side in the 2018-19 campaign and believes a hard summer training block will make a difference. We have got to accept where we are in the table and wipe the slate clean before next season, Solomons said. We have got a good squad and know the Premiership is a tough competition, so we have got to fight every inch of the way. The players are off for about five and a half weeks and then we are going to come back and work really hard. Pre-season needs to be brutal because we need to be conditioned physically and mentally to give us that consistency. Last year, Gary Gold, who Solomons replaced as Warriors boss in late December, took the decision to give his charges a longer off-season as he felt they were mentally knackered. Gold allowed them five weeks off before giving them an extra two-week break if they hit their targets in training. Solomon said, I have come in late in the day, so I have not done any analysis of what happened in pre-season last year. I wasn't here, so I don't know, but what I do know is we need a very tough pre-season in order for us to prepare physically and mentally for the challenges that lie ahead. I believe that's the key for us to getting consistency in our performances. 
In the summer of 2016, warriors went on a gruelling 12-day high-altitude training camp in the French Alps as part of their preparations. Asked whether he had any trips planned, Solomons replied, I think everyone has just got to have a break in the summer and then when we regroup, all that information will come through. While most of Solomon's players will be recuperating, others will be representing other countries on summer tours. And Warriors boss said it was absolutely vital they get them off before coming back to six ways, get time off before coming back to six ways. I will make sure they will get a break when they finish, Solomon said. I have already spoken to Joe Tafitz as he is going to be off with America during June. I have spoken to the other lads, particularly Nick Schoenert and Dak Jack Singleton, if they get an opportunity to play for England. I will make sure they get a proper break as it is a very physical game. You have got 30 players out there who are well conditioned, big, strong, physical athletes and rugby is a collision sport. Sun worshippers in Worcester enjoyed the hottest May Day bank holiday Monday on record as the city's previous record was toppled. People flocked to the riverside to enjoy ice creams and boat trips while dogs cooled down under sprinklers at Pitchcroft and in the fountains of South Quay. The Earl boat was packed when it set off from the dock at 11am for a river cruise and dragon boaters made the most of the heat. Worcester and Malvern held the record for the hottest early bank holiday Monday from May the 3rd, 1999, when the mercury reached 23.6 degrees centigrade. That record fell when a temperature of 24.2 centigrade was reached in East Sussex. Worcester also broke its own high, with the temperature rising at 24 centigrade by 1pm and North Holt, West London, reached 28.7. Richard Wall, aged 53, of Cutnell Green near Droitwich and Labrador Retriever crossed Lucy, 12, were enjoying the sunshine, Mr Wall said, the hotter the better. It makes such a difference to the area. People come out and spend money for the local economy. It's great, and Lucy enjoys it too. Everything is pointing to this being a record breaker. Hopefully it'll continue. I'm hoping for a long, hot summer. Chris Wise, manager at Cafe 7, said the warm weather had brought out more customers with a busy morning for breakfast. The West Midlands Ambulance Service issued a warning to motorcyclists not to go out in shorts, a T-shirt and flip-flops. A service spokesman said, if you come off, you could receive life-changing injuries at best. It's not worth it. Our staff reported far too many riders putting themselves at risk yesterday. Dress for the slide, not the ride. Tributes have been issued to a long-serving landlord who was the life and soul of the party. Tim Radley, 61, was the landlord of the Hot Pole Pub in Friar Street, Droitwich, for 21 years, before dying last month after a battle with cancer. Chris Wilson, the new landlord, who worked with Mr Radley for 17 years, said, He was an absolute legend, such a brilliant bloke. He was kind and caring. It has been a massive shock to all of us. He was like a dad to me. The pub improved a lot whilst he was here. It is a proper proper camera, real ale pub now, and it wins lots of awards. Chris added, He fought for 18 months with cancer and it eventually got the better of him. 
Sheridan Russell, who worked with Mr Radley for 14 years at the pub, said he was the life and soul of the party. He was a very colourful character, she told the Worcester News. He was very well known by a lot of people. People remember his liking for Bacardi and Coke. He did a lot of charity work for St Richard's Hospice and he would always help out someone who needed it. He was a very fun boss to work for and he is missed by everyone. Mr Radley was the second longest serving landlord in Droitwich with around 250 people believed to have been at his funeral. He had previously been the landlord at several other pubs across the West Midlands, including the Red Lion in Bradley Green near Redditch and in Kings Norton. His funeral took place on Monday, April the 23rd at Redditch Crematorium with donations to St Richard's Hospice and Tim's Memorial. Mr Radley, who died on Sunday, April the 1st, spent years running the 18th century hot pole into a camera pub and it has been nominated for a number of awards. A loved-up Droitwich couple recently celebrated their diamond wedding anniversary. Ahead of their time, Valerie and Clive Guest met through a dating agency and were married at St John's Church in Longbridge, Northfield, Birmingham, on Thursday, April 26, 1958. Moving to Droitwich, Worcestershire, in 1970, the couple had four children, Nigel, aged 56, Ian, 54, Sarah, 49, and Mark, 46. 87-year-old Valerie still enjoys gardening and can be often found digging up weeds in the garden. 89-year-old Clive is a keen rugby fan and he still goes to watch Worcester Warriors at the ground at Sixway Station, Warriors Way, with son Ian. Clive worked as a sales director and on his retirement played an active part at Newlandhurst, Droitwich, a residential home for young adults with learning disabilities, working as chairman and treasurer. His son Mark is Down syndrome and lives at home. Valerie was a housewife and kept busy with four children. Their daughter Sarah said the couple do not like to be idle. She said they get out and do something every day. They used to love walking the countryside and have a particular affection for Cornwall. It's where we spent most of our childhood holidays. The couple have seven grandchildren, Emma, age 22, Laura, 19, Gemma, 31, Sophie, 26, Joshua, 21, Nathan, aged 8, and Charlie, 3, and one great-grandchild, Olivia, aged 17 months. The pair had a special celebration at the Pear Tree Inn at Smite alongside their family and friends, and they also received a celebratory card from the Queen. A new lease of life has been granted to a unique town centre landmark thanks to Malvern Hills College. The future of the theatre of small convenience in Edith Walk was shrouded in uncertainty after its founder, Dennis Neal, announced his retirement. The college announced on Friday that it has agreed with Malvern Hills District Council to take over the lease of the world-famous Little Theatre and the much-loved performance space will be officially reopened at 4pm on Monday, May the 21st. Members of the public are invited to join a procession of college students and staff, which will start in the grounds of the library and Graham Road at 3.30pm.
Participants are encouraged to dress up for the occasion in fancy dress, hats and masks. Students at the college, well known for its arts-based courses, will be using the eccentric venue as an exhibition and performance space to support their coursework. The college is also planning new courses in production and performing arts from September 2018. The Theatre of Small Convenience was founded by Mr Neal in 1999 as a venue for drama, puppetry, poetry, storytelling and music. Its name comes from the building's original purpose, a Victorian gentleman's public convenience. In 2002, it entered the Guinness Book of Records as a world's records as the world's smallest theatre and today seats 12 people within its quirky interior. Caroline Park, head of art at the college, said the college is thrilled to be able to take on the tenancy of this very special theatre because we love what Dennis has created. Malvern Hills District Council owns the building and were keen to ensure it continued to be open to the public. Councillor James O'Donnell said the Theatre of Small Convenience is one of Malvern's gems and I'm delighted we've been able to secure a deal that will not only ensure it continues to be used as a performance space but will remain accessible to the public. And here's another renovation for Malvern. Members and staff of Malvern Hills Trust gathered at St Anne's Well to celebrate the successful completion of essential renovation work to this popular tourist spot. The project to restore this Grade 2 listed building was completed over the autumn and winter of 2017 and it reopened to the public in February 2018. Trust members were also joined for the evening by architect Matthew Gullick and Sean Morris Builders, both Malvern-based businesses who carried out the work. John Redman, the St Anne's Well Cafe tenant, put out a wide selection of sandwiches with homemade bread and delicious cakes for the evening celebrations. The restoration plans were drawn up by Mr Gullick, working closely with Malvern Hill District Council Conservation Officers and Historic England to carefully protect the sensitive historic features of this listed building. The works contract was carried out by Sean Morris Builders, who undertook the external repairs and restoration works to the roof, rainwater, goods, windows and side elevation. Inside, a full refit of the cafe, kitchen and internal facilities have been undertaken, including electrical, plumbing, damp roofing, drainage and heating systems. Duncan Bridges, CEO of the Trust, said St Anne's Well is a well-known feature on the hills but had reached a stage where the fabric of the building needed sorting out. This project was aimed at restoring and refreshing the historic exterior of the property while at the same time bringing the interior services of the building into the 21st century. We are delighted with the works that have been achieved, which will ensure St Anne's is fit for purpose for many years to come. And this article is about a city auctioneer who has just um, been on BBC's Flog It programme on the television. A city auctioneer is appearing on BBC Antiques show Flog It. The auction house opened earlier this year on Sheriff Street, Worcester, and today's appearance um, coincides with the first weekly auction this evening at 6.30. And that was actually last Wednesday. Oh, um, 
Yes, no, it wasn't. It was yesterday, the 9th of May. Owner and self-confessed hoarder, Roger Yeomans, said his appearance on the long-running show was filmed around a year ago. The public takes items to the show and presenters and experts from the programme look at the objects and decide what's desirable, said Mr Yeomans, 68. It's quite a coincidence that my first auction is on the same day as the programme being broadcast. I'm hoping that that's an omen that will do well, he said. Mr Yeoman, who was born and raised in Ronxwood, said those wishing to be on the show are allowed to take three items before one is chosen for auction. He took two 100-year-old Edwardian dolls, a signed Vitya Vronsky record and two Teddy Boy-style suits. After evaluation from antiques art expert Natasha Raskin at Croom Court near Morven, the suits were selected to be auctioned at little auctions in Evesham and sold for £10 each. The auction house situated in a former car showroom in Unit 3 was partly set up to help raise money to reform the old Worcester Children's Marching Band, which disbanded in the 1980s. 10% of the shop's takings, as well as 100% of what is raised at each Wednesday auction, will go towards the band. Mr Yeoman is hopeful of getting support from the City Council and local businesses with the objective to have a new band lead next year's Worcester Carnival. Growing up in Ronxwood, where the band would practice, he said he remembers the organisation being an iconic part of the city's identity. They were always so proud and it made Worcester proud. The effect the band had on the public during the old carnivals was very touching, he added. You can contact Mr Yeomans on 07545 155 617. The ambulance service turned out in force for the funeral of its medical director. Full honours, a parade complete with motorcycle outrider, a 1930s ambulance and fly-pass by the West Midlands Air Ambulance took place at the funeral of Dr Andrew Carson. Dr Carson, who died of cancer, was medical director of West Midlands Ambulance Service from 2011 until his death on March the 27th. He previously chaired a number of internal committees and also oversaw the governance of responders working with partner organisations such as local basic schemes, air ambulance services and the merit response. He was also the Trust's Caldicott guardian and at the time of his death was involved developing a groundbreaking electronic patient record for use by ambulance crews in association with the wider NHS. His funeral service was held at All Saints Church, Ribbonhall, Budley, on April the 26th. After a welcome and opening prayer by Reverend George Pitcher, who had known Dr Carson since their days at university, the ambulance service's chief executive, Anthony Marsh, gave a moving tribute to Dr Carson's work. Professor Steve Field, who is the Chief Inspector of General Practice, also read a tribute to Dr. Carson. Also amongst the congregation were many friends and colleagues from Birmingham University and many other medical professionals. Dr. Carson, aged 62, 
previously worked as an inner city GP in Birmingham for over 30 years and was a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. For over a decade, he had been Associate Dean for GP training for Birmingham and Solihull, responsible for the education of over 300 GP trainees at any one time during a comprehensive three-year training program. He leaves a wife, Joe, and six children. And his daughter, Fallon, aged 25, sang at the funeral of her father. A zebra crossing near Asda, Worcester, may have taken the crown for the most hated crossing in Worcester. We reported how little progress had been made on axing the unpopular Croft Road crossing after councillors first promised to get rid of it a year ago. Many readers subsequently accused the Pheasant Street crossing by Asda of being worse in terms of danger and congestion issues. Nigel Berry, 38, said, I think it's poor planning having a zebra crossing right by a roundabout on quite a busy road in the city centre. It can cause traffic to jam quite badly there because of people that keep getting to the crossing. There is actually a pedestrian island right there by it, by it that people could use to cross. I have used the crossing myself and had quite a few motorists ignore the crossing and nearly run me over. Janine Allen Brockley, 28, said, I think Asda Crossing is an accident waiting to happen and shouldn't even be there because of blind spots and traffic, but the least they could have done is to have put the crossing nearer the Asda entry so there are no blind spots. Sharon Joy, 46, said, Most of these crossings are dangerous, but they are used constantly, so there is a need for this crossing. The problem is where it's positioned. Right round the corner from a roundabout and the constant stream of pedestrians can make for irate drivers who sit in traffic tailing back up Rainbow Hill. Everyone gets impatient. Some of the walkers will just step out and some of the drivers will carry on. Something needs to change. Many residents believe a pelican crossing would have been a better option. Last year, Councillor Simon Geraghty said the council would review the possibility of a pelican crossing being put in place on Croft Road, replacing the current zebra crossing. The change was due to be financed by the council's £5 million fund, fighting fund, set aside for projects to ease congestion in the city. The crossing on Pheasant Street first came under fire in 2011 when we reported fears that cars were not stopping for the crossing. The Worcestershire County Council spokesman said, We are considering the zebra crossing on Pheasant Street as part of our phase of congestion improvements. However, plans are at an early stage. Oak Apple Day at the Commandery in Worcester will bring a traditional celebration back to life. The event will tell the tale of Charles II's flight from the Battle of Worcester through live theatre, living history and spring-inspired family fun on Sunday and Monday, May the 27th and 28th. Grade 1 listed, the commandery will see its medieval Great Hall festooned with garlands of oak leaves, its gardens filled with Morris dancing, live theatre and living history, and there will be a plum pudding and small beer too. At 3pm on the Sunday, visitors can watch the new performance, Civil War Stories, which weaves together true tales of politics, religion, monarchy and conflict in Worcester. 
Worcester has a particular connection with the tale of Oak Apple Day for Charles II, hid from parliamentarians' troops in an oak apple tree in 1651 after his royalist cause was lost at the Battle of Worcester. He returned to the throne nine years later on his 30th birthday, which was May the 29th, 1660, which became celebrated as Oak Apple Day. As part of the celebration, children and adults would wear oak leaves and oak apples, a small round gall made by wasps, on their clothing. Those who didn't do this would risk being pinched, pelted with birds' eggs and thrashed with nettles. At the commandery, families will be able to get crafty making apples sprigs, decorating crowns and getting involved in paper rebellion, a 17th century inspired art project with a local artist. They can also have fun discovering old fashioned children's games. David Nash, commandery manager, said Oak Apple Day is a wonderful spring celebration that local families love and really brings to life some of the amazing stories from the commandery's history. This year will be extra special as we have the first public performance of a brand new Civil War-inspired play that was written just for us. The commandery was relaunched last year with a new experience, focusing on Worcester's, Worcester's Civil War story, in which visitors can discover a portion of the original royal oak tree in which Charles hid on display, sorry, in which Charles hid on display, as well as a stunning mural that depicts Charles's escape from the Battle of Worcester, inspired by 17th century engravings. A talk on a Worcestershire airfield and the radar technology which helped the Allies win the Second World War will mark the centenary of the Royal Air Force. Organised by Worcester Civic Society, the talk by Dr Dennis Williams will take place at 2pm at St Peter's Baptist Church, Eden Close, Worcester, on Thursday, May the 17th. The talk, which is free to attend and open to members and non-members, is called Defford Airfield, 1941-1957. The talk describes not only the war-winning radar technology that was tested and evaluated at Defford, near Pershaw, but also the way in which the building of the airfield changed the landscape of Croome Park and introduced a large but temporary community to this part of rural Worcestershire. The speaker, Dr Dennis Williams, gained his private pilot's licence at the age of 17 on completion of an RAF flying scholarship. He worked at the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment as a materials scientist, but having also been involved as a volunteer in a wide variety of archaeology and local history projects, started a second career in the heritage sector. After working as an archaeological finds specialist for several years, he is now employed by Museums Worcestershire on outreach and education tasks. He is also curator of the RAF Defford Museum within the National, with the National Trust at Croome. There is ample free parking for the church car park. Further information can be sought by contacting Phil Douse, that's D-O-U-C-E, Worcester Civic Society Chairman by emailing info at worcestercivicsociety.org.uk or by calling him on 07760 
352086. This item is about the Hague Literature Festival. As well as its usual impressive lineup of writers and thinkers, including Margaret Atwood, Ian McEwan, Michael Mapergo, Ehud Barak, Laura Bates, David Olusoga, Rose McGowan and Jermaine Greer, Hay Festival 2018 also boasts an action-packed late-night music and comedy series. Late nights at Hay are a, are a time to laugh and a time to dance and a time to feast, said Peter Florence, director of Hay Festival. It will be a party. Come on, on your own, come with a partner, come with a bunch of friends, everyone is welcome. Internationally renowned comics take to the stage throughout the week. Russell Kane kicks off with the festival's opening weekend on Friday, May 25th, with his uproariously funny stand-up show. Jeremy Hardy is live on Saturday, May 26th. On Sunday, Shahizia Mirza returns to the festival with her critically acclaimed new set, with love from Saint-Tropez and David Badiel brings his Olivier-nominated one-man show to Hay, My Family, not the sitcom, while on Bank Holiday Monday, viral sensation Rachel Paris takes to the stage. Comedy continues throughout the week with Marcus Brigstock, Dara O'Brien, James Acaster, Tony Hawks and the Scummy Mummies. A trio of great comedy minds close out the the festival over the final weekend as Bridget Christie presents What Now? Deborah Francis-White talks The Guilt Feminist and Phil Jupiters presents his latest project with cartoonist Martin Rawson. Main stage music kicks off Thursday, May 24th, as singer-songwriter Jake Bug plays a one-off intimate gig. On Friday, 25th, cult star Hackney Colliery Band kick off a blockbuster opening weekend that features Mercury Prize nominee Laura Mavrula, classical hip-hop, fusion group Josephine and the Artisans, Welsh harpist Catherine Finch, and Senegalese Kora player Sekou Keita and West African supergroup Les Amazones d'Afrique. To close the festival, there will be a rousing party bringing together choirs from Hay and Brecon. And to browse the full programme, visit the website at hayfestival.org. And that nearly brings us to the end, but there's a couple of uh, dates that might be of interest. The Droitwich residents will have the chance to quiz councillors, the police housing associations and others at a special community and agency together CAT meeting. The gathering is taking place at St Nicholas Church from 7.30 to 9 on Tuesday, May the 15th, and people are invited to come along and raise any issues or concerns they may have with their Witchaven District Councillor, Roy Murphy, their county and town councillors, as well as with the Police Housing Association representatives and the Droitwich Council for Voluntary Services. So that's on um, May the 15th. And a volunteer at the Furs, Elgar's birthplace in Lower Broadheath, will give a talk at the Church of St. Philip's 
and St. James in Whittington at 7.30 on Friday, May the 18th. It's a free evening with donations to the Elizabethan Room Appeal and the National Trust. Um, We've got one birthday coming up, which is Anita Bogartz. Now, forgive me if I haven't pronounced that correctly, but many happy returns to you, Anita, for the 18th of May. If anybody else has a birthday and we don't know about it, please do let us know because we'd love to um, wish you a happy birthday. Lighting up time is 20.49 to 5.22. Emergency phone numbers for our out-of-hours medical assistance, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. is 0300-123-3211. And the NHS number for non-emergency help is 111. Malvern Theatre telephone number 01684892277. Worcester Live is 611429, which covers the Swan and Huntington Hall. Worcester Hub number for Council Matters is 765765 or 722233. Crime Stoppers is 0800 555 111. Our phone number is 015905. 767766. Our address is 11 Wiles Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. Um, we are having our 40th anniversary of Talking Newspapers on July the 25th. Um, this is just a, a, a start of, of um, letting you know to put a, a date. I beg your pardon, it's the 28th, I've been corrected, sorry, the 28th of July. Um, but you will have more information later on. But just put that into your diary, and we'd love to see you all. So from all of us tonight, good night. <laughs>